Hi, and welcome to the Did You Know Crypto podcast. Today is a great interview with Christopher Bendixson of CoinShares, where we are talking about the evergreen topic of Bitcoin energy usage. Now, this is something that's very important. It's going to be coming up a lot more as we move forward. Just trust me. This is going to be an episode and I guess we're going to be talking probably more with in the future. Uh, I think uh, you're going to really enjoy it. Uh, He is in London, so we were calling over a phone. So the audio is not as good. My end too, there's a little bit of background noise, but overall, I think it's very good and the content is superb. If you want to help out, please go over to iTunes, leave a five-star and a written review if you can. That's the biggest thing that you can do. If you want to help out further, please go over to supportmypodcast.com. That's supportmypodcast.com. You can see all the different ways from shopping through Amazon to supporting us with Bitcoin on Bitbacker and every other way. So I really appreciate it. And thank you so much for listening and enjoy the show. I'd like to welcome Christopher Bendixson, head of research at CoinShares, a company comprised of financial industry alumni offering private strategies and two exchange-traded Bitcoin and Ether notes, the first of their kind in the industry. Christopher, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. The majority of the episode's going to be talking about Bitcoin mining energy usage, but first, I'd like to hear about your personal journey. So why don't we let the listeners know a little bit about yourself and how Bitcoin found you? Sure. Um, yeah, I. Um, I mean, I don't know how far back we're gonna go. I uh, I, I grew up in Norway, uh, kind of in rural middle of nowhere, and uh, made my way sort of to the states to uh, go to university, uh, where I met some really interesting people, um, who uh, who later were gonna introduce me uh, to Bitcoin. Um, sort of. Traveled around a bit, went, uh, finished a master's degree in Barcelona in biophysics, uh, ended up in London, started working in finance, um, got introduced to Bitcoin then through an, an old friend from the States and sort of fell headlong down the rabbit hole. Um, then, you know, Bitcoin wasn't really that big for, for a while. It, it didn't really have any sort of full-time opportunities uh, available to to almost anyone it was you're sort of super privileged if you're able to work with uh, bitcoin full-time then uh i met ryan radloff our uh, ceo at CoinShares, at a conference here in uh in london which was your archetypical like 2015 conference of uh blockchain not bitcoin just a bunch of lawyers (laughs) absolutely awful actually and uh, we kind of connected uh, based on just basically making fun of everyone that was there. We were talking about like how, how you can you can have blockchains without native tokens, and mining was unnecessary. <laughs> you didn't even need any of that, and um, sort of became friends. And uh, when he uh, when he partnered up with uh, with Danny Masters and uh, the Global Guys uh, to do to create Coin Shares out of uh, out of XPT provider and uh, um, and uh, Ryan's plan for uh, sort of you know world domination, 
I uh, I joined in as as the head of research, and that was in August 2017. So it's been a while now. It's been almost two years. So you know, while there, I've I've concentrated on um, doing educational research. Where we're still at the level where we feel like the most uh, the most value we we can get out of research output at this point is essentially just educating investors and prospective investors, getting them comfortable with the asset class and getting them comfortable with how everything works and what they need to pay attention to. So that's sort of sort of what I'm doing and uh, what what our focus is at the moment. Now, this question I find to be quite instructive. And it varies, you know, depending on the person, their background and where they come to Bitcoin from. But what is Bitcoin to you and how do you define it? Uh, it's a new monetary system. I would uh, be my, my definition. I mean, you, you know, as you know, you can take this however far and wide you want. But I, I see it as uh, the opportunity to recreate our entire monetary system based on sound money and um, non, non-third-party non involvement to the largest extent possible. Trust minimization, essentially. And the reason that I wanted to have you on, and we've been trying to set this up for a little while, but we had different time zones and it was just a little bit difficult to actually uh, get our schedules together. But you did uh, send out a tweet storm um, in conjunction with the CoinShares white paper that was released on Bitcoin mining energy usage. And this was in early November, December timeframe. It was extremely well done. And I think everybody in the space appreciated it. And this specific topic of Bitcoin mining energy usage has been kind of an elephant in the room for a lot of people in the space. I even, it was discussed in my interview with Caitlin Long, um, a while back and we were basically talking about it. she brought up how a lot of these reports that are released are, are done kind of with barroom napkin type of calculations that they use to basically besmirch Bitcoin uh, in its energy usage. And this, I think, is going to be an attack vector uh, for the future of Bitcoin. In the past, it was linked to dark markets or it could be used to fund terrorism, those types of things. And those tropes still exist and, and they still pop up on occasion. But I think especially with the move towards uh, more environmental concerns and, you know, in the United States, we have now an emphasis on a quote unquote Green New Deal, that this is going to be something that's going to get latched onto. And as Bitcoin provides more and more of an actual threat to the status quo of the central banks, that this will be a very popular attack vector against Bitcoin in the future. Yeah, sure. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. This definitely is sort of a, a topic of the times, uh, which is partly why we started uh, latching onto it. Um, I mean, it's definitely true that Bitcoin uses a lot of energy. Um, the the sort of the sort of difference is that first of all, not everyone thinks that's a bad thing. I mean, planes use a lot more energy than uh, than wooden ships. Uh, you know, a washing machine uses more energy than 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 you do just washing clothes in a bucket. Like automation requires energy. Um, progress in civilization requires energy. So part of the reason why I think Bitcoin got sort of such a bad rep is that 
or you know at least in these publications that didn't really you know look through their sources too well um is that not you know the the power consumption got coupled with uh with an with an incorrect assumption that uh china is a particularly dirty place <laughs> uh this is a little prejudice in my mind i mean you know the the, the argument goes sort of something like this, you know, all miners are in China and, and China is is a dirty place where where electricity production is particularly bad and it's all done with coal plants. And, uh, you know, we, we had done a, a bunch of sort of uh, anecdotal background research on this and, you know, it's been known for years within the mining industry that this couldn't possibly be true uh, because nobody, Nobody that we ever talked to were aware of anyone that were mining using fossil fuels. And the reason was was not because of, you know, trying to save the environment or, or anything like that. It was just too expensive. Fossil fuels, I mean, Bitcoin mining is a, a global absolute race to the bottom of electricity prices. If If you don't have the cheapest electricity out there, somebody else will and they will mine with it and they will you out of the market so you know we we figured that there's got to be something there's got to be something that's not really right here and you know we decided to get to the bottom of it because i mean i have to admit like even i when this narrative first came out like i was like wow that that is bad you know like if if that is the case then then that's not good you know we we are in a period of uh of human civilization where we are in sort of like a, a transition period over to renewable energy. And while I'm normally, I, I'm, I'm not even the proponent of being cautious with energy use in a transition period like this, we, we kind of have to, because we don't have an energy spent expenditure problem. We have an energy production problem. Uh, you know, we, we create too much energy from fossil fuels. That's our problem. Not that we spend a ton of it, but in the transition process where we have to transition from fossil fuels to renewables without it becoming incredibly, incredibly expensive real quick and ruining our economy, we, we do actually have to be a little bit careful. But so we, we started looking into this in, in a little bit more detail because the anecdotal stories that we heard uh, didn't fit this narrative at all. We, we we only knew of one place really where Bitcoin mining was done at a significant level using coal, and that's the it's um, in uh, Inner Mongolia. Uh, and uh, there's that Bitmain facility there that got a lot of publicity a bunch of years ago. So you can sort of see how this all like how this narrative came together. I mean, it's it's sort of a a, a previously industrialized now slightly more deindustrialized area uh, where uh, where you could set up these like warehouses for really cheap and get access to super cheap electricity and that happened to be coal. But in almost every other case, like all the miners we spoke to were like, no, you know, we, we actually mine with hydro because it's way cheaper. And first we were puzzled, we were wondering like, you know, how, how come hydro is so cheap? And then it started dawning on us then that uh, most of these people are mining on uh, hydropower that is heavily underutilized. So either either it's sitting in, in areas where they had a large build out of hydro demand and then, uh, I mean, of hydro capacity and then industrial demand either didn't quite materialize as anticipated or 
there used to be a lot larger level of industrialization around that area, and then some of these clients left. So this, for example, is is the case uh, quite often in uh, in the United States, whereas and in Russia, whereas in China, um, you you had an outright just over investment in hydro because they were aiming really hard at becoming the the world's premier smelter of aluminum, which they now are, uh, but they they went way too far. So. As we sort of started doing this, we we figured, well, you know, wh- why don't we actually try and, and quantify this? Uh, why, why don't we why don't we try and see like what the actual number is? Because we had looked around and there just didn't there just didn't seem to be very much out there. You had a you know you had a bunch of research reports that are sort of trying their hand at this, but kind of coming at it from the opposite direction that I would like to see it. Like so. First of all, the, the their assumptions were kind of poor. Uh, the assumptions were essentially that most mining is in China, and therefore let's just assume that China is uh, a proxy for the entire network. Then they also didn't uh, split China into its appropriate regions as it should be. I mean, China is a gigantic place. It's got 1.3 billion people. Like not every part of China is the same. I mean, it it almost sounds a little silly to sit here and say that, but, you know, because you'd think it's so obvious, but apparently not. So uh, we, uh, we, we decided to try and look up, first of all, like where are the miners, uh, you know, not just, on a country by country basis, but within the country. So we've had a, we've had a, an extremely deep dive into the, the sort of underworld of mining, if you will. It's an extremely relationship driven industry where people keep their cards like really close to their chest. Like nobody likes to talk about anything. Like nobody wants to give you any information. Everyone thinks you're gonna screw them over. People, you know, you want to hear something absolutely crazy? <laughs> you have some miner whose perspective it is when we contact them, we go, you know, we're we're doing these mining reports. We're uh, partly just trying to shine some some positive light on mining and and help everyone's public image uh, because we feel like it's been unfairly uh, unfairly downtrodden. And some of the perspectives that we got out of miners are we don't want that. We want to have a bad reputation. <laughs> we don't want to have a good reputation because then we get more competitors. So <laughs> it's uh, it's been uh, yeah, <laughs> it's it's a very challenging uh, it's a very challenging research environment. But so anyway, you know, after after spending hundreds of hours like crawling, uh, you know, calling around, talking to as many people as we can. Uh, trawling message boards, forums, like reading every article about every new mine that is opened, you know, ever, uh, and mapping this all out. Uh, we teamed up with uh, some friends of ours from a company called Three Body Capital, and they got us access to uh, to uh, r- renewables penetration data. So essentially, the breakdown of electricity generation by source. Um, on a provincial Chinese level, which was kind of like the that was like the breakthrough in in, in data points that we needed. We we hadn't we, we didn't 
have access to that before and they were able to get it. And as soon as we found that, we we could sort of start placing miners like regionally on a map. And then uh, our assumption is, our assumptions are very simple. And that's not because we think that the mining industry is very simple. It's just because we we don't, see the need to make this complicated right now to prove our point. Uh, and we think that easier assumptions are easier to talk about and we don't want to hide behind like complexity or anything like that. We, we just want to have our, our assumptions be easy enough that you either agree with them or you don't. And if you don't, you, you know, you can articulate your reason why you don't agree with them. And then we can, you know, either agree to disagree or, you know, have, have a, a simple uh, debate about it, whether, you know, in, instead of this like complex debate of, you know, this isn't quite right or or this has a nuance to it, you know, we, we, we try and make it a lot simpler. So our assumptions are, are pretty easy. Like we, we've split the, we've split the world into four groups. One of them is Sichuan, where we think that 80% of Chinese mining happens, and we think that 60% of mining happens in China, which means that 48% of global mining happens in Sichuan. Then uh, we have the rest of China as another group. Then we have all uh, relevant non-Chinese countries, states, and provinces. And then we have sort of the rest of the world, so four groups. So our assumptions are pretty easy. Um, they they assume that within the non Sichuan China group, um, mining is uh, pretty evenly distributed, and the same goes for the the outside of China provinces. So we're saying that in all the relevant sort of non Chinese provinces, mining is evenly distributed, like across like Washington State, Oregon, New York, Quebec, Norway, Iceland, Sweden, so forth, and then there's sort of the rest of the world, um, and then. We we give our estimates for <clears throat> where we think the global mining share is, which you know is 48% Sichuan, 12% remaining China, 35% uh, non-Chinese relevant regions, and then 5% like rest of the world, if you will, which which is like small scale um, places. That, you know, there's some stuff happening in like Australia, and we we hear about stuff happening in you know Miami. Doesn't make sense to me, but it, apparently happens there's like arizona continental europe you know it's, it's a little bit of everywhere but small scale so then you essentially take the renewables penetration for each of those groups so for sichuan for example sichuan is 90 uh 90.1 powered by renewables on a on a um, on an annual basis it's important to note that because uh the power production in Sichuan is very uh, seasonally dependent. There's a wet season, and then there's a regular season and a dry season. And in the wet season, it rains a ton, uh, and they produce way more electricity than the grid can even handle. Uh, and in the dry season, they produce a lot less, and they have to supplement with uh, fossil fuels, hence why you get that like last 10%, if you will, of, of fossil um, generation in there. So you essentially, um, you multiply the renewables penetration with the global mining share for each of these uh, major mining regions, four, four of them. And uh, when we do that, you actually come out with a, with a global total um, 
share of renewables penetration in Bitcoin mining of uh, almost 78%. And I, you know, th this makes a lot more sense uh, when you when you compare it to, first of all, what the miners say themselves. Like almost all of them uh, say that they're mining using uh, very cheap hydro contracts. And if you look at what, where they all are, I mean, this, this makes total sense. Uh, they're all in like Sichuan and Yunnan provinces in China, uh, with the exception of some that are still in Inner Mongolia and like Xinjiang. And then in the West, they're all in the Pacific Northwest uh, or, you know, Quebec, upstate New York on the St. Lawrence River Basin. And in Europe, they're in like Iceland and Scandinavia and to a certain extent like western russia and then there's a, a stronghold in the caucasus like these are all mountainous rainy regions with lots of hydropower like this should kind of be obvious to to people that look into this in uh in detail so that's sort of like the journey on how we ended there and as i mean 77.6 percent renewables penetration i mean that's a lot higher than the global average like the global average is 18.2 and by the way as like a funny point in this you know sort of against the whole uh china electricity generation is particularly dirty and like china is actually ahead of the global average so people need to check their uh their sort of anti-chinese prejudice here they're actually doing quite well on the global scale so that's sort of that's sort of how we started thinking about this and 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 where we ended up where we are uh, hopefully i mean we're we're trying to we're trying to add more precision and accuracy into the models um, you know but it it just it comes at the let me put it like this say that we say that we mapped out like every miner on the planet and put them all on a map like it's actually not that interesting and great for Bitcoin. So it's a, it's a little bit of a discussion on whether or not that's something we should even strive for. Well, I guess that's uh, a different topic of mining centralization, but um, that could be discussed at a later date. But the Chinese themselves, the government policies uh, have been actually pushing, as far as from what I've been able to read, uh, uh, you know, a percentage of, of miners are starting to leave China just based on uh, the government policies and just not being very favorable to them at all. And that kind of rolls right into something that you discussed in the white paper, which was uh, the kind of mobile mining operations. And when most people think of Bitcoin miners, they're not thinking of, you know, mobility. They're not thinking of um, the, the thing is something they saw in a Forbes or Wall Street Journal article, and they showed the pictures of these massive warehouses with floor to ceilings stacked, you know, computer equipment with, you know, lights flashing and whatever, right? It looks, it looks very uh, kind of server warehouse-y and does not look like something that would be very mobile. As it seems like many of these miners are just kind of scrambling to find the cheapest renewable energy sources, uh, the cheapest energy that they can find. Have you continued to research kind of this phenomenon of these mobile mining operations kind of scrawling all over the place looking looking for these cheaper energy sources? Yeah, th this is something that we're trying to incorporate into our models. I mean, when we first heard of this, like, I was quite surprised. I, I didn't I hadn't really imagined that this was a thing. But yeah, it turns out a lot of miners, this is particularly a Chinese phenomenon. 
uh, and it and it, it relates heavily to the the different seasons of uh, of wet and dry, especially in the the, the heavily hydro producing regions. But yeah, we we learned that a lot of miners are pretty nomadic, and uh, they'll they'll move their gear around extremely opportunistically. Uh, they'll pack up a place in a couple of weeks, ship it literally across the country, set up a new spot, and you know resume again. And um, what, what's what's almost even more shocking is that we we hear stories about uh, about upwards towards twenty percent uh, loss rates of uh, of gear uh, through the transition process, which sounds extreme to me, but uh, but but this is what we're hearing. Um, so. You know, th this nomadism of mining is is something that we're trying to account for. Um, it's it's just a little bit hard to know exactly where it is that they're always going, and I I always have an aversion to add complexity to models where simplicity will do, um, especially if if you can't gain any much more accuracy without um, sort of putting putting on to paint quite heavily with your uh, with your assumptions, but it, it's something that we're looking at. And you know, uh, besides that, there's a there's a big trend of uh, miners just wanting to leave China, which we can all imagine why that's the case. I mean, the government's not very friendly towards the 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 Communist Party, large government that is. Uh, local governments seem quite happy for the income, <laughs> so there's a bit of a a bit of a discrepancy there between the the central government and the local government. You see a lot of the arguments in these newspapers when they make the environmental claim. It seems like there's two groups of people that latch onto this. It's either the, the folks that already didn't like Bitcoin, and this is just a thing for them to throw out there for another reason why the thing they don't like is also bad. Uh, and then those who have never actually looked into Bitcoin um, and are against any kind of environmental damage and just read one article and then you know decide that now because bitcoin uses energy and quote unquote large amounts of it that it is inherently bad just because of this and i think that this is kind of a problem on our end because it's a it's a lack of education on our part of, of trying to, of you know and there are a lot of people out there right now uh, that do great work you know educating the public it's just a slow crawl but i think it's just a total lack of education on why does that energy need to be used what is it actually used for and there there is a profit incentive i mean that is why that the network works and that's what secures the network but but the disconnect i think is in people understanding why bitcoin is important that is still the part that is lacking because to most outsiders, it just sounds like a bunch of you know internet nerds with their internet nerd money, and and not something actually you know world changing and important and and uh, necessary to use this amount of energy. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's I, I mean when you take a couple steps back, it's like funny almost. It's like. You know how how can a bunch of internet nerds possibly like muster enough money to pay for like five billion dollars worth of electricity on an annual basis? It's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> now, 
Now, what I'm hopeful for, and and uh, this is not my idea. This has been talked. This has been bandied about by others uh, as a concept. Is that Bitcoin and its miners, as they continually search for cheaper energy, unlike say you know some sort of regulation by government agencies or some sort of super national agency uh, and, and imposing uh, restrictions is actually offering a, a profit incentive for entrepreneurs to create better, more efficient forms of energy um, and even possibly to incentivize uh, nation states. And I, I don't know how you feel about nuclear energy, but in your report, you talked about 22% of the non-renewable energy was coming from fossil fuels and or other, including mm -hmm. nuclear. And I feel if you could have Bitcoin being, you know, nearly 100% renewables and nuclear i think that that would be the the best option uh for sure. the least environmental impact for such a important project considering mm -hmm. that if you're just concerned mostly with emissions as being the 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 the, the biggest problem um as far as for environmental impact then it would be extremely green you know if we could combine nuclear and renewables as being what's what's powering the network hey folks i hope that you're enjoying this episode as much as we are i don't have any sponsors so if you could go over to supportmypodcast.com, you'll see all the different ways that you can support the podcast from amazon links to a bunch of other stuff you could back us on bitback or with crypto but most of all if you can go to itunes and leave a five star and a written review it'd be very very helpful so thanks again and enjoy the rest of the show Yeah, no, I mean, I, I agree with that, especially modern nuclear energy uh, with uh, with fuel cycles that leave you with uh, with isotopes at the end that have half-lives that are on the order of, you know, 10,000 10, years instead of millions and, and billions. Um, I mean, on a geological like time scale, that's, that's practically nothing. So, I mean, I'm 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 not an, I'm not against nuclear power by any stretch of the imagination and i think especially right now in this type of uh this type of sort of serious circumstance the the cost benefit ratio really makes sense um and you know there's there's fusion <laughs> which is that perpetually 50 years away um which would obviously solve everything um but uh, I mean, like to me, uh, Bitcoin has sort of sailed in as uh, just a private solution to subsidies of uh, of renewables production in in remote areas. Like we now really have the chance to just build out renewable energy production where the cost is the lowest. Which, as we all know, is, does not tend to be around exactly where people live. You know, solar power is most efficient when you put it in a desert in the middle of nowhere where nobody lives and it's always sunny and it never rains. Um, hydropower ha happens to be 
uh, generated in mountainous regions with large rainfalls, and people tend to live on coastal plains and in valleys. So, you know, we now have a chance to a lot of these a lot of the reason why this power is so cheap in the first place is that it's too far from the demand. Um, and a lot of times you need a certain scale um, for it to even make sense to connect it to the grid. And this this requires an immediate, like a huge uh, front-loaded CapEx expenditure. And it's really hard to do um, in one sort of big go like that. So what we potentially have the opportunity to do now, and this is sort of how I hope this plays out, but obviously we don't know. Uh, the way I hope this plays out is that Bitcoin now acts as like a cornerstone demand globally, so long as you're in like uh, a jurisdiction where you have some rule of law and some protection of private property. But Bitcoin now acts as sort of a global uh, electricity buyer of last resort, like a cornerstone demand that will come and eat up whatever it is that you have to offer of the cheapest possible electricity. Uh, and it can then drive the profitability of these projects, uh, even though they're built just wherever, if you will. Um, and if we can, if we can use like Bitcoin mining as sort of the, the cornerstone client there to, to make these projects profitable, uh, to drive a, to drive their scale to levels where they become big enough that grid connections make economical sense. Like, you know, we're doing, we're doing a net benefit to the, the global renewables production. I mean, we got to keep in mind that uh, people have this idea that Bitcoin mining is uh, taking away from energy that we could be using on something else, but that's not actually true. Like Bitcoin mining cannot possibly compete with regular domestic demand for electricity. Domestic, uh, domestic uh, consumers of electricity, let's take London as an example. I, I think we pay something like 15 cents per kilowatt hour here, uh, which is fine in the city. People will pay that. Like I will pay that to have my you know lights on and my computer running. But a Bitcoin miner can almost not have, like a Bitcoin miner these days probably doesn't stand much of a chance of making a profit if he's mining on anything more than three cents per kilowatt hour. So you can see that as soon as the miners have to compete with regular either industrial or domestic demand, you know, they, they don't stand a chance. So Bitcoin miners of the future, if if they became this like sort of uh, bootstrapper of new renewables project would be very nomadic because they would, they would sit at the renewables project and mine until the, the project was large enough that it made um, economical sense to connect it to the grid. As soon as you connect it to the grid, the prices would rise up to closer to the domestic levels and the miners would be priced out and would have to move on to the next project. So, there, there is a potential super interesting um, future role to be played for Bitcoin mining here. And, you know, I, I was at a conference last week and I was actually uh, I was very surprised at, to the, the level at which a lot of um, utilities themselves are looking at buying uh, mining equipment to distribute it 
throughout their grid to uh, to deal with uh, to deal with uh, grid overload. Um, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of inefficiencies out there in the grids, and there's a you know a, a lot of electricity essentially being wasted every day. I mean, the grids are are in perpetual overproduction just to make sure that we don't get brownouts. Um, and a lot of electricity is wasted daily uh, just to make sure that everything stays on. And the, the utilities themselves are looking at uh, Bitcoin as a potential way of monetizing this, which would also be an extremely interesting uh, future development. So there's a lot of stuff happening. There's also a lot of miners talking about complete vertical integration where they literally build and operate their own power plants. Like fascinating stuff happening in this industry. That that is really interesting. The the concept of utilities actually becoming uh, small small miners in their own regards, and and just the the concept of maybe even incentivizing investment in uh, rural in, in better rural power, or just bringing power to rural communities that are near renewable resources using Bitcoin mining as a cornerstone um, permanently or just to get it off the ground to provide a, a, a certain amount of time of, of monetary investment and income stream. I also thought it was really interesting, part of the report you talked about, um, or Iceland was mentioned as being one of the, one of the uh, areas where um, large-scale Bitcoin mining was, was occurring, not on the scale of China, but they're, they're using geothermal there. How prevalent is that? Uh, within the um, pole of Bitcoin mining? Uh, I, well, I mean, Iceland has a pretty uh, heavy share of geothermal in its energy mix. Um, and there is a significant amount of mining happening in Iceland. And, and geothermal is quite cheap. Um, so Iceland is one of those places where they have an incredible abundance of uh, of energy and uh, very high production of electricity and very high consumption of electricity. I think I, uh, I think uh, the Icelandic probably have one of the highest uh, electricity spends per capita in the world. And um, they, they've been sort of, uh, so both Iceland and, you know, my good old native Norway have, uh, have this same type of, of issue in that we have huge amounts of renewable electricity just as a potential uh, and very small populations. So there's always been this question of, you know, how do you export this stuff? Uh, and uh, it's, it's been solved in kind of the same way. So you, you use uh, aluminum smelting as like a, a proxy for exporting energy because it is an extremely energy intensive process. Um, but so you, you essentially, you import uh, bauxite, then you smelt it into aluminum which it takes a huge energy output and then you export the aluminum and that's sort of how they've been doing it. And this makes all the sense because like you said, like geothermal is extremely cheap. Uh, you, you essentially have just steam coming out of the ground. You put a turbine over it. Um, and then <laughs> you, you just essentially have to pay back the, the cost of the turbine. You don't have any fuel costs. You have a little bit of maintenance and, and that's about it. 
uh, there's a lot lower capex than you know if you're if you're doing hydro where you have to build a gigantic dam and lots of concrete goes into that. You're like you're you're ruining like a local river ecosystem and there's all sorts of consequences. Whereas geothermal is just kind of loud and annoying and that's about it. Um, and it's extremely cheap. So if you get access to geothermal uh, electricity, uh, you're, I mean, again, it, it, it depends. It's like not all the geothermal power plants in Iceland are, uh, are, are sort of the same price. You know, if you're near the demand centers, the, the price is always higher. If you're, if you're away from them, it's, it's cheaper. So this is kind of how it goes. So Bitcoin has a tendency now to just be done. Bitcoin mining tends to be done in the middle of nowhere all of a sudden. Which is which is interesting. Yeah, you know it is um, because I, I lived out in that area, uh, kind of like that in Idaho um, in the American West, where where power is really cheap due to a lot of hydro and and other renewables like that. And um, it was one of the reasons actually I was I was mining um, very small scale out there, but uh, just because it was the power is just so extremely cheap. I think it was sub five cents if I'm not. If I'm not uh, around five cents a kilowatt, which is not as cheap as China, but um, for the United States is actually pretty pretty cheap, and I ended up having to sell it because we we're moving to the it was going to double or maybe even two two and a half x my my energy costs to continue to. But I'm just I, I was just kind of taken you know fascination of this idea of of fusing um, private investment and in, and in, uh, incentives in the Bitcoin network in in bringing better power alternatives to rural communities or bringing better more efficient renewable you know resources and power um, just online into the world just because it is incentivized within the within the Bitcoin uh, system uh, just because you know there's a lot of communities that that just don't have that I mean I remember even just where I grew up in Alaska, um, there's there was there were more in the rural areas, but they would actually be run on large diesel generators. Um, it was it was subsidized um, heavily. Obviously, the the individuals there were not paying for it uh, directly. Someone eats it. Yeah, no, somebody definitely does uh, does eat that cost. But I didn't have any questions left on my end uh, that I wanted to cover. I was wondering if there's any any final thoughts or or anything that I may have missed. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's I, I I'm just happy that somebody even wants to talk about it. Like most of the time, people see mining as this extremely boring type of thing that just goes on and no one really cares about. But um, I I think it's a it's a super fascinating uh, super fascinating like industry is the fact that we can have a decentralized clock is is pretty cool and um i i feel like this this kind of gets lost in 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 all of these like consensus model debates um people talk about like for example proof of stake as like a a comparable alternative to proof of work and it's not it 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 doesn't act in the same way at all like proof of stake is like a, a delegation of authority based on certain criteria, but proof of work is actually a decentralized, distributed, universal clock, um, and it's it's never really talked about 
as that. Um, and, and it's interesting because, you know, uh, if, if you read how Satoshi described um, the blockchain, he never called it that. He called it a time chain. And in the white paper, uh, the the section that where he talks about proof of work, um, he he lays it out pretty clearly that the reason we need to do this is in order to create a distributed time stamping server. And it, it sort of makes all the sense because you, you, you kind of only need two rules for people to agree on like a distributed set of money. The first one being that anyone can only spend money once. And in order to actually enforce that, you need everyone to agree on the time ordering of transactions. And that is what proof of work does. Like work implies time. Like if you, if, if we get a little like physical here in uh, back to our physics 101, like work is force times, uh, it's a product of force and time. So if work has been done, that means that you can imply time from it. Uh, and, and this is why proof of work is such a brilliant solution to the distributed clock problem is that we, we can now know certainly that time has passed based on these essentially thermodynamical principles. It's, it's remarkable. It's super cool. And these other type of consensus algorithms, if you will, are not comparable. They're, they're not in the same class as proof of work. They do something else. They have completely different uh, trust models and they require completely different assumptions uh, for the people who are, who are in the system. So, yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm a proof of work fanboy. No, I do agree. I think that mining uh, kind of gets uh, pushed to the background a bit when we're you're talking about the just the 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 possibilities of the you know the, the whole space and everything and we're looking at the tech and development um but it, it usually only gets brought up um in terms of scaling debates and you know when you see these hit pieces being written in forbes and and other periodicals and saying you know bitcoin's going to boil the oceans and i think that it's a very low-hanging fruit type of thing for critics of bitcoin to grab onto but as, as we kind of talked about a little bit earlier, um, I think it's going to be something we see more and more of as this. And it's why I wanted to do this interview, because I think this is going to be an evergreen topic for quite a few years to come. But I think it's going to be very important because I think we're just going to continue to hear this trope uh, being amplified more and more. And I, I think it's really important for, for us to talk about this as a community more, to take this more head on. Um, and and be a lot more more concerned with with this uh, with this attack vector. Yeah, agreed. And I I think this is like an attack vector that the young generation will be especially susceptible to because they are so sensitive to the climate issue these days. So you know, th this is part of like our motivation to do this is that we. We, we need there to be more data-driven research out there so that these kids can like look at real data and make up their own mind instead of just reading these like sensationalized headlines and, and think, oh my God, like this is just another, you know, awful thing on top of the pile of BS that we already have to deal with from like the previous generations, like ruining our world. And I just want to, 
make sure that they don't just fall for this like false narrative immediately and 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 that there's something out there for them to go look at and check out for themselves and obviously our hope is that more data-driven research on mining is going to come out and and sort of going to create its own little ecosystem of research um so you know we're hopeful there are a bunch of interesting groups out there that are thinking about it uh it's just i just i just feel like mining has this like boring reputation so not everyone kind of sees its uh sees its importance immediately it's funny you bring up you know the younger people because i was just looking at at this study that was done and it was it was done in uh the fall of 2017 so it was kind of at the the height of the bull market but they did uh, this study and and basically the question was like if you had a thousand dollars what would you invest in and millennials about 20 to 30 percent uh said that they would invest they would take that thousand dollars and they would rather invest in bitcoin over things like stocks and bonds or or uh you know mutual funds or things like that where 65 and older were only at five percent and I, I think that you really hit the nail on the head where this is going to be a wedge issue for a lot of to be used to to drive away support from a demographic that has the most support for bitcoin yeah and you know we we, we can't let that happen because in reality there's there's no talk about the environmental disaster of uh of uh committee control of um of important economic metrics like interest rates like you know let, let's talk about the environmental impact of the mega level of malinvestment that happens due to artificial um artificial interest rates like this is a gigantic problem too or that is a problem whereas i don't see bitcoin energy consumption as that big of a problem i mean think about the think about the environmental impact you get just from malinvestment in mega infrastructure when, when whenever interest rates are artificially kept low at these rates, like you have projects go through that should never have gone through. You have wastage on the orders of billions and billions of dollars every year. So it's not like the alternative we have is this like pristine, you know, super green alternative. Like you you can argue that uh, gold mining, Bitcoin mining is a waste on on a lot of levels you could argue that uh but the alternative is even worse right the alternative is is first of all not having sound money and the alternative is having uh committee decisions uh actually determine the level of the cost of capital in a society i mean that's that's absurd so you know we we have to keep in mind that we can't compare it sort of to to nothing. We have to compare it to the alternative that we already have, and the alternative we already have is pretty bad. No, no, exactly. I I think uh, when we talk about malinvestment, I remember after the 08 housing crisis, I remember reading an article, and it was specifically about Ireland, where just that, that those false signals being sent out um, 
to the market were telling people to, to build. And, and in Ireland, they actually built more houses than they, than they had people to, to move into them just because the market was telling them build, flip, sell, build, sell, flip, or whatever, right? Um, and and it's just insane that there's these this malinvestment through false signals in the market where Bitcoin sends out very clear signals um, and and tells a very clear signals entrepreneurs who want to build in this market what the system, what the network needs now, what the network is going to need in the future, and and doesn't have this issue, say with with malinvestment um, that that markets using fiat um, tend to do and tend to have. And and right now, uh, miners are constantly sending out signals that they need uh, cheap uh, renewable forms of energy. And I, I think it's it's Bitcoin is superior because it sends out very clear signals. Mm -hmm. I agree, and I you know th this is something that I personally would like a return to. I I feel like the market does a better job at this than a committee, uh, you know, as with most things. So to me, it would be it would be very interesting to see like how uh, how business cycles in the future could. Uh, could look if, if if we just have true signaling coming from the market itself. So how do uh, people follow you? Where do they find you? And who do you want to hear from? Um, I mean, people can get a hold of me on Twitter, probably the easiest. Uh, just like shoot me a message there and I'll, I'll, I'll sort of back follow people and we can DM. Um, I mean, I would love to, uh, we, we always want to hear from actual miners uh first of all because getting getting feedback on getting feedback from the people that actually are in the industry on whether or not our assumptions are uh are reasonable is extremely valuable uh unfortunately the people that tend to opine the most about our assumptions are people that are not in the industry <laughs> um so while that is interesting and helpful it's even more helpful if we get people that are actually involved um you know th th there is a there is a certain level of uh, wisdom of the crowd that goes into some of our estimates and uh th the more data points we have there the better so you know if if you read our report and and look at it and think you know this does not this does not look like it's correct like please let me know um we'll 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 listen and 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 change up our uh, change up our assumptions as we go. You know, we don't pretend that the models that we use are perfect by any stretch of the imagination. Um, so, any, any feedback to tweak them and and sharpen them is always always welcome. And I will have all of Christopher's contact information as well as for CoinShare, the Twitter handles, uh, website address, everything like that, as well as any of the uh, links, articles, the tweet storm, everything that we mentioned. In this episode will be in the show notes at digitocrypto.com slash 28. That's digitocrypto.com 20 slash 28. And once again, Christopher, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure.